Good morning, Southbridge. Good morning, Wyatt. Welcome back from Panama. Glad to see you here. And those of you who are on the Panama team, glad you're back. Um, and uh, those of you who are guests today, just want to welcome you and just ask you if you wouldn't mind taking a moment while we're getting seated and adjusted and all those kinds of things to grab your worship program. Inside that worship program, we slide a little card, a little uh, hard paper card there uh, that's called a connection card. And we just ask you to fill that out. It's a way for you to serve today. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, telling us how you heard about us as a church. And then we want to serve you as well. We're going to give you a gift and some other information about our church. And there's information about that in your worship program. But uh, while you're getting seated, you can go and grab your iPad, your Bible. It's going to be in Acts chapter 24 today. And you think about the time of year that it is, there are many of you that are students or maybe parents of students and final exams are taking place. What is the final exam all about? Trying to figure out not just that the school year is over with, it's not just you do it and then you get to be done. I know that feels like that sometimes when you're in it, but they're trying to figure out what it is that you know. They're examining you. They're investigating to see whether you retain the knowledge of the things that were taught. Are they teaching effectively? Are you studying effectively? And there are lots of exams in our world. We go to the doctor to get exams. We get poked and prodded and blood pressure taken and all kinds of questions asked and different tests that can be done. And you go to the dentist. They examine your teeth. We have car inspections here in North Carolina. We examine cars. People examine fruit. If you go to the supermarket after church today, you'll see people doing They do some weird stuff with fruit, don't they? see people there like looking at it, talking to it, thumping it. I don't know what exactly they're, I'm, I'm a wild man because I go to the store and I just grab it and I put it in my cart and I walk away. People are probably like, what is that guy thinking? Like he doesn't even know that fruit yet. He's just taking it, taking it back to his house. Anyway, there's all kinds of exams that are taking place in life. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever been on trial? You've been examined before. Have you been examined like that? Maybe cross-examined or investigated maybe a specific area of your life? I remember the first car accident I was in. Yes, that means what you're thinking now. There's been more than one. The first car accident I was in, I was 16 years old. I had just gotten back from spring break in Florida with a friend of mine, and I was taking a shirt back to the store. My mom let me borrow her old, long Buick Regal. It was two-tone brown. It was a beauty. And so she let me drive that thing to the store. I'm 16 years old, and I returned this shirt. And I remember afterwards, I had gotten cash back for the shirt, and I had it sitting in my lap. And I started looking down at my lap, and I forgot there was a stoplight coming up on the road. And when I looked up, not only was the stoplight red, there was a car sitting at the stoplight. I was going about 45 miles an hour. This car did not have anti-lock brakes. And I was 20, maybe 40 feet, somewhere in that range behind this car. And, and I look up and I slam on the brakes. I crank the wheel. The car starts to slide. I don't know how it happened. But I rear-ended that car with the rear end of my mom's car. 180 turn, apparently. Slapped the thing out into the intersection. It was facing me. I, there were no airbags or anything like that. I, I looked around. I wasn't injured. My first thoughts were, but I'm a dead man. My mom's going to kill me. I just wrecked her car. Miraculously, the other people were not hurt. I ran over to a payphone. Some of you don't know what that is. <laughs> I went to a payphone and called my mom and started to tell you, know, I was in an accident. I had that. Are you hurt? And I was thinking, I could milk this. It's like, no, your car's ruined. And a couple weeks later, a few weeks later, I was in court talking about the ticket that I had received while I was telling the judge the story. Once I said that I was looking at money in my lap, he said, well, if you had money in your lap, you have money to pay a ticket. <laughs> Hadn't thought through that part of my argument. It was $16. Like, I'll pay a $16 ticket. But he was investigating me at that moment, at least that aspect of my life. Now, what if your life was on trial? What if your life was being investigated, was being examined, your life was on trial would they come to the conclusion that you're a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ? What if they're examining every part of your life, would they come to the conclusion that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you love your neighbor as yourself? Because the evidence would dictate that. What if your life were on trial? Would they determine that you are a worshiper of the one true living God? 
And today's message is called Your Life on Trial. What if your life were on trial? What would they figure out? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 24, really covering the whole chapter. We're going to focus in on one specific section of this passage of Scripture, though. Acts chapter 24, if you've been with us, you may remember we've been going through the life of the Apostle Paul and some of the faith journey that he's been on, different places that he's gone. And a few weeks ago, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and a prophet came to him, tied up his hands, tied up his feet with a belt, and said to him that if you go there, you're going to be bound. If you go to Jerusalem, then his friends, even the guy who writes the book of Acts, Luke, one of his close friends, through tears, plead with him, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go there, you're going to be arrested. He goes there, he gets arrested. He gets beaten, the Jews are beating him to try and kill him. And some Romans step in, they stop the, the, the beating, the, the murder that's taking place. And he gets questioned sometimes, but he hasn't been on trial yet. This is the first formal trial that he's been on. And what's happening is the Jews are accusing him. Ananias, the high priest, thinks this is so important that he travels 65 miles to be at this court case. Some of the Sanhedrin, remember the Supreme Court, they had a, a, a meeting with Paul where they questioning him. There were no real trial that was taking place. They got all in uproar. They, they wanted to tear him to pieces. Some of those guys have come. But they hired a professional lawyer, professional orator, to bring a case against Paul. And what happens in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 24 is that that orator comes before the, the Roman official, one of the highest ranking Roman officials in this province, his name is Felix, and starts to kiss up to him. I don't know if you've ever been around to kiss up before, but he's saying stuff that's not even true, just to flatter this guy. And it can be annoying, can be bothersome, but it's so blatantly dishonest. He tells him, we're so thankful that you've kept the peace there hasn't been an administration uh, other than Felix's that have, have had less peace. And the way that Felix keeps the peace is very brutal. Uh, Pax Romana is known as Roman peace. That was a big deal then. And if you violated Pax Romana, you could be executed. That was the first accusation against Paul. It says, if you look at your text, he's a troublemaker. Some of your translations may say he's a pest. Sounds like they're just name calling him. No, that's a, that's a capital crime he's being accused of. Say that he's a cult leader, that he's leading this sect from Nazareth and that's illegal. And then the third charge is that he's def- tried to defile the temple, which means given back to us, the Jews, we have the legal right under Roman law to execute someone for defiling the temple. And so these are some serious charges against Paul. And what we see in verse 10 is he starts to give his defense. In verses 10 through 13, he shows that none of those charges hold any water. None of those charges can hold up in, in court. They don't have any evidence for those things. But then in verse 14, the case takes an interesting turn where Paul starts to say, here's what you will discover in my life. Look at it with me. Verses 10 through 16, we'll read together right now. In verse 10, Paul's life on trial. He's been accused of these things. In verse 8, they said, examine him. If you examine yourself, you'll find this out. And so here's the exam. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years, you've been judge over this nation. You know the Jews. You know how this whole thing works. So I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. How could I lead a revolt? I've only been in town for 12 days. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple. In fact, he was there worshiping, doing purification rites, and they would have record of that. He said, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. None of this stuff has any evidence. He's, he's now defended himself, point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint on the charges. In verse 14, he says this, though. However transition. I admit, if you do examine me, this is what you will find. I confess, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. 
I believe everything that agrees with the law and is written in the prophets. That's the Bible as they had it then, the Old Testament, the first five books called the law, the Pentateuch, and the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I have a hope in judgment day the righteous and the wicked being resurrected. So I strive always to keep a clear conscience, a conscience clear before God and man. So here's Paul. He's on trial before this Roman official named Felix. Felix is told to examine his life. He begins to examine his life to investigate what's going on. And Paul says, here's what you'll find. Can you imagine if your life were being investigated? Imagine somebody's following you around. You look into your rearview mirror on Monday, you see a car, it seems like it's following you around. Then you see the same car on Tuesday, they start to park out in front of your house. They start to watch you, where you go, what you do. And they investigate even. They start to talk to people that know you, start to talk to your neighbors, start to talk to your coworkers, maybe call some old employers and ask what kind of employee you were. Talk to some of your friends, some of your relatives. They start to read your emails, listen to your phone calls. They start to look at your taxes. They dig up old taxes and see how do you use your money? Are you honest in the deductions you take? And are you generous in the contributions you make? If they did all those things, would they come to the conclusion you worship the living God? And imagine they could go even further. I mean, people got bent out of shape uh, about a year ago, two years ago, when Snowden came out with telling everybody, hey, the government's listening to your phone calls. And, you know, they listen to me go, honey, do you want me to get milk on the way home? I, I guess. And that's what they're doing. What if they could go beyond that? And they couldn't just listen to your phone calls. Maybe it's not the government, but somebody's investigating you. And they know your thoughts. And what if they go beyond knowing where you go and the activities you do and the deductions you take and the way you act with coworkers, and they could know your motives for doing those things? Would they then come to the conclusion that you are a worshiper of the true God, of the one living God, that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you worship in spirit, that you worship in truth? Paul's saying that's what's true of his life, and he's being examined. He tells the Corinthians that we should examine ourselves. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There should be tests that you do. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 139 to the Lord, who does know the heart and who does know motives. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And then the next verse, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what if your life were on trial? What if there were an offensive way in you? Would you be willing to deal with it? Would you even want to know that it's there? What conclusions would be drawn? You see, you go to the Old Testament. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Daniel. Daniel, there are some different guys that want to come up with bad stuff against Daniel. So they do this. They follow him around. They investigate him. They try and track his life and see all the behaviors that he, he does. And you know what conclusion they come to? The only way we can have anything against Daniel is if it has something to do with this God, because we found that he lives a life of worship. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 14. You go back to verse 14. Here's what you're going to find if you examine my life. However, you know, none of those charges, the accusations, the accusers have made against me are true, and there's no evidence for any of that. We don't even need to talk about that anymore. However, here's what you'll find. Verse 14, I admit, I confess that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. You'll find that I live a life of worship. If you examine Paul's life, He was found guilty of a life worshiping God. And what about you? Would you be guilty of a life worshiping God? That's kind of the big premise of today's message. Are you guilty of a life worshiping God? Now, I'm convinced of this. If someone were to follow you around, and if someone were to examine every part of your life, 
they would come to the conclusion that you are a worshiper. And that would be true of everyone. Because we're all worshiping all the time. Someone, something, we're continually worshiping. You see it in, in the book of Genesis. They were created to worship God. Adam and Eve were created in perfect relationship to worship the creator of everything. Instead, they chose to worship creation, a piece of fruit. They would place their trust that they would experience what they want to experience through fruit. You go to a third world country, someplace that's never met a a foreigner, never met a Westerner, never met an Easterner, never met anybody outside of their tribe. Go somewhere where there's some rural place that's never had contact with the outside world. Guess what? They worship. Everybody worships. You keep going through the Bible, and you see what ends up happening in the book of Exodus. They're worshiping the true God. They're following him. He's leading them. He's led them across the Red Sea. And then what happens? He seems to be absent. He seems to not be there. Their leader, Moses, is not there for a little while. And so what do they do? They make a false god. They make a golden calf. Why? Because we have to worship. We're always worshiping something. We're always worshiping someone. The issue is not, are we worshipers? It's what do we worship? And are we worshiping the true God? living God. Because Paul's saying here, not just that you'll find I am a worshiper. He's saying, you'll find that I am worshiping the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. Based on Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would that be true of us? It's interesting, the word for worship here, it could be translated another way. In fact, the New American Standard Bible does translate it another way. It doesn't use the word worship. NIV does, English Standard does, and, and uh, King James does. Uh, different translations do, but New American Standard uses the word serve. They're the same. Worshiping and serving. If you look at Paul's life, when he was found, when he was arrested, he was worshiping. He was at the temple doing purification rites. But when he's talking about his life as worship, he's not just talking about that one moment. And we talk about worship. We're not just talking about singing songs. A lot of times in American culture, that's what we think of. We think, you know, Paul must have been a worshiper because he could hit the high note. Or maybe he raised his hands when he, when he sang or he got down on his knees when he prayed. See, that stuff is actually an expression of what should already be an inward reality in our lives. If we live a life of worship, then singing songs or praying or doing those outward things should be an expression of the reality of what's already been going on in our minds as we meditate on God. What's already been going on in our hearts as as our heart is fully his. What's already been going on with our finances as we've been sacrificing for the sake of his kingdom. What's already been going on with our deeds as we've been serving for the sake of the kingdom. And so when you look at Paul's life, what you end up seeing is, you go back to Acts chapter 9, from that moment on he realizes my life has been bought at a price. It is not my own and it is poured out. He says uh, in the book of 2 Timothy, that his life's being poured out like a drink offering. He says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. He views his life as his worship. And you see it, and every, every just go, just start to summarize. Those of you who've been with us through Acts, Acts chapter 9, what happens after that? Oh, he starts to preach to God. He gets baptized, so he's obedient, submissive, and he starts to share. The way that he's worshiping is by his service. His service is primarily as God's witness, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's witnessing, telling people, and he does it when he's successful. And you see regions of the world come to Christ when Paul preaches. And he does it when what we would do, what we would perceive as failure. He gets imprisoned. He gets ignored. He gets beaten. He gets slandered. He does it when he's suffering. He does it when he's not suffering. His life, it belongs to God. It's been bought at a price. It is a drink offering. It is poured out. It's a life of worship. And he tells this guy who's investigating his life, you want to know if my life's a life of worship? I'll give you three characteristics. And he says it in verses 14 through 16. Look at it phrase by phrase. You see the three characteristics. He says, you want to know? He says in verse 14, I admit... I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. And here's how you know. I believe everything that agrees with the law, 
and it's written in the prophets. That's the Bible. He's guided by God's word. Next thing, and I have seen the same hope, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So his hope is in God. He's guided by God's truth. His hope is in God. And then he says, so, because those things, two things are true, verse 16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so he's got a hope in God. He's got a clear conscience before God and man. And it's all guided by God's truth. Think about that first phrase. He's guided by God's truth. He's saying to them, I believe everything in the law and the prophets. He's guided by God's truth, by God's word. He's talking about the Bible there. Classic passage on worship, the cornerstone passage, if you really want to get to know worship, the starting point is John chapter 4. And what's happening in John chapter 4 is that Jesus has an encounter with a woman at the well who's lived a, a sinful life, but she wants to argue about where you should worship. Should we worship in this place or should we worship in that place? And Jesus tells her, God's seeking worshipers, true worshipers, he calls them. But true worshipers, they worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit is when our spirit connects with God, who is spirit, God's spirit, and in truth is according to God's word. That means this, God doesn't want just sincerity. Look at the Old Testament. Here's how you make a sacrifice. Here's how I want it done. I want it done exactly this way. You get to the New Testament, and we think, well, now we're in an age of grace. We just do whatever we want. God understands. He knows. If you're gonna... Read the scriptures. He wants an exact specific sacrifice, but he wants it to be your whole life. It's a whole sacrifice with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's expressed through the way you live your life, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And it's seen in what mission you live on, and you fulfill his great commission. And it's lived in a life of holiness. And he specifically lays it out. But it's your whole life that he wants. A living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. And Paul's saying, if you examine my life, that's what you'll see. Because you'll see that I believe everything, key word, that's in the law and the prophets. That's a really interesting statement considering the accusers that are there. The accusers that are there would be the Sanhedrin, which consists of two groups groups of people, Sadducees and Pharisees. Both were spiritual leaders of the day. Both claimed to believe the Bible. The Sadducees were real real interesting because they're like a lot of liberal pastors in our area, and there are a lot of them that that believe parts of the Bible. I don't believe the whole thing. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they they can't believe the gospel because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there will be a judgment day, resurrection of those people, and you just die. And they believe the Bible. But just the five books. And now they only had the first five books and then the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't have the book of Acts being written right now at this moment. They didn't have, you know, Romans or Galatians or any of those books. But they only took the first five and said, we're going to leave the rest. Now you had the Pharisees who were more like conservative people that will say, and many people in churches or, or, or people that are even pastors will say, I believe the whole Bible. But here's the problem. They missed the main thrust of it. Missed the main point, missed the mission, missed the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself confronts them for doing this. John chapter 5, maybe you remember this verse, verse 39. It says, you diligently study the scriptures, speaking to the Pharisees, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. See, the whole point of the scriptures isn't just a book with writing on pages. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. So you miss them. So you got one group that's saying, you know, I'll take this part of the Bible, I'll leave that part. And then you got another group that's saying, I believe the whole thing, but they missed the main point of the whole, the whole deal. It's a lot like what many of us do. I'll take the promises, hold the commands. It's kind of like we, we treat the Bible like a menu. I was thinking about that this week. With the, I had a friend um, on our staff, I won't tell you who it is because 
I don't want to ruin his reputation, but he was telling me, and you can figure it out here in a couple minutes, but uh, <laughs> he was telling me that he thought that eating at Sheets Gas Station was a good idea. So, you know, that's why I don't want to ruin his reputation. Anyone who would say such things, obviously, heretic, and so it's a problem. But we were talking about on Mondays, a lot of times the guys on our church staff will go to lunch together, and he was trying to tell me this was a good option for us to go to a gas station. I was trying to tell him, you buy gas at a gas station, you buy food at food places. I don't care if it's a supermarket, a farm, or a restaurant. Like, you don't buy food at a gas station. He started to tell me how great the menu was at Sheets. We got in the car. We were a little indecisive on where we were going. We ended up going to Waffle House, which I admit is also a terrible food decision. <laughs> I did eat for $3 there. It's probably worth $1.50, but I ate there for $3. And uh, when we were done, uh, we were still hungry. And so we happened to be in the parking lot of Sheets. And so this friend of mine persuaded us to go over to Sheets Gas Station just to look at it. And so we go there and we look at it. Our executive pastor, he wasn't the one that was pushing this, is wanting to know how is this food prepared? Is he, he's operations, right? It's kind of, so he's like looking behind the desk and trying to figure stuff out. The only guy who ate there was Pastor Jad, just so you know. He's not the one who was pushing sheets, though. Not that he didn't endorse it, just he wasn't pushing it. But he, did, he just wasn't satisfied with the meal he had at Awful House. And so uh, he went over there and got something. And then uh, I went to the menu. I started checking out the menu at Sheets, and you can get all kinds of stuff there. They've got burgers and fries and appetizers of some sort, and uh, they've got pizza. Uh, they had snack wraps, only they didn't call them snack wraps. They called them snack wraps. It was annoying. They didn't have wings. They called them schwings. They had schwings there. They had all kinds of different stuff, and you could get certain things, leave out other things, and it got me thinking about that's a lot of times what we do with the Bible. I'll take this. I'll leave that. I'd like to customize my faith. And so I like the forgiveness and the grace and the things that we love to talk about, God's love, but I don't leave the sacrifice stuff kind of on the side. It's like the vegetables, you know, put that out there. I'll, I'll take some promises. I'm not so sure about all the commands. I believe some of these things. I don't know if I believe all these miracles, but I mean in general, I believe God's there. So I, I must be a Christian because I go to church and I believe in God. Let me say something, back up. Let me get to the foundation, the base of this whole deal. If you're a Christian, you have to believe the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is that you are a sinner. That's the most offensive thing in the whole Bible. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. People don't like you, okay? You are without hope. You are without God. You are lost. You are hopeless. You are dead, the Bible says, spiritually speaking. There's nothing there. You can't, you can't be shaken into it. You're, you're out of it, okay? You're a sinner. You have to believe that. And that God came to earth, put on flesh. God became a man. You believe that. If you're a Christian, you have to believe this. That God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a sinless life, then was murdered by Jewish people who were supposed to find him and see him because the scriptures pointed to him, but they murdered him. And he died to deal with the punishment of your sin and my sin so we could be reconciled to God. But he didn't stay dead. He was buried, put in a grave for three days. After three days, he rose from the dead. You have to believe that in order to be a Christian. Now, let me ask you this. If you believe that, now listen, if you don't believe that, you can tell yourself whatever you want. I believe in God, I pray, I'm in, God's going to understand. No. The Bible says he's the only way, that's the way to heaven, that you are a sinner separated from God. It's the gift only comes from Jesus Christ, is eternal life from him because of what he did, not because of anything you do. Passage Pastor Jad was reading, Ephesians chapter 2 says, it's by grace you are saved because he's given you a gift, not because you deserved it. By grace through faith. You don't have faith in that, you're out. Now, let's assume that you believe that. Everyone else, you don't have nothing else to talk about. That's your thing. If you believe that, why would you have a hard time with anything else in the Bible? You believe that God died and then rose from the dead, and you have a hard time with some meal, 
So he fed some people? Who cares if it was 5,000 or 5 million? Why, why does it matter? He rose from the dead. There's a, that fish story? Why is that a struggle? And you don't think the commands are best for you? Like you get to decide? You believe that, but you have a hard time with this other stuff. The other stuff should all be easy once you believe the gospel. So do you believe the gospel? Because the interesting thing that Paul says here in this passage to me is he says, I believe everything in the Bible. He didn't pick and choose what he wanted like the Sadducees did. He didn't miss the point of the whole deal like the Pharisees did. And that's the point of the whole deal is the gospel. If you don't have the gospel, you're out. If you claim to be a believer and you're missing the gospel, man, what's going on there? How can you struggle with the other stuff if you get the gospel? That's the biggest step of faith, the biggest decision you can make. And so then to believe that the commandments are best for you, to cling to the promises in the times of need. See, Paul's saying that God's word guides his life. Does God's word guide your life? And I've got some questions I want to ask you to help you evaluate that. Test yourselves. Do you read God's word regularly? Simple question. Think about God's word and its role in your life. Do you commune with God through his word? Does it guide your prayers when you pray? Is it just all about you and talking about you, or do you pray God's word back to him? Do you use God's word? And when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Look at the scriptures. Is it the topic of conversation with friends, with family members, with neighbors, with coworkers? If not, what is? And that's probably what you cherish the most. Is the Bible where you go for refuge in times of trouble? Where else are you going to go? Those are the words of eternal life. Is it where you go when you're bored and you want to be challenged? Do people see the truth of the Bible in your life? Is it where you go for delight and for pleasure? These are the words of eternal life. There's nothing else that will bring satisfaction beyond these words. Why would we go anywhere else? Is the Bible guiding our lives? Not so we just know words on a page like the Pharisees did, but so you know the person of Jesus Christ. Paul saying my life was guided by God's word. You want to know if you live a life of worship, is your life guided by God's word? Second phrase he gave here. And I have the same hope in God as these men, talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that there will be a resurrection. <laughs> well, the Sadducees didn't believe it. Another argument. Very slick how Paul's doing this here. Of both the righteous and the wicked. And he has a hope that's in God. You want to know if I have a life of worship? Then ask me, what do I hope in? The key word in that phrase is the word hope. What does that word mean? Now, many of us, when we hear the word hope, we think about wishful thinking. We think about, you know, cross my fingers and hope that something good happens in the future. Hope that that raffle ticket I bought, because we won't say lottery, we're at church. Hope that raffle ticket I bought, get a bunch of money from it someday. Or there's some relative I have out there that's going to die that I never knew, so I'm not really sad about that, but they're going to give me a bunch of money. It's hopeful, wishful. It's not based on anything, but it's thinking about the future. Or, you know, as a little kid, I hope that I get a pony for Christmas. Or I hope that I get, you know, something. It's just a wish. When you talk about the Bible, the biblical hope is not a wish. It is about the future. That's what it has in common with the word hope that we oftentimes use. But it's based on God's faithfulness. So there's a foundation for it. John Piper defines biblical hope by saying this. He says that it's a, a confident expectation and desire for something in the future. Key word there, confident. It's a confident expectation and desire for something in the future. Now, the word hope that we talk about is oftentimes desire for something in the future, but there's no reason for confidence that it's going to happen. Now, with biblical hope, there's a reason for confidence that it'll happen. Here's the reason. Because God's been faithful in the past. So when you have a, a, a hope, is almost like saying a future faith. When you have a hope for what God's going to do in the future, i.e. life after death, his next coming, 
judgment day, which is the very thing Paul's talking about here. I have a hope on the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. Because that's going to be a good day for Paul because it's going to be at that day that he receives his rewards. It's going to be at that day that he gets to glorify and worship God forever. It's going to be at that day that the singing will be a true expression of the inward feelings that he has towards God. It'll be at that day that his mind that he's been worshiping God with will be connected with the mind of Christ. It'll be at that day where he's fully brought into the image of Christ. So he has a hope in that day, a hope in the future, a future faith. But what's that based on? Paul hasn't been resurrected yet. He can't base it on the truth that it's already happened, but he's seen God do other things, i.e. Romans or Acts chapter 9. He saw the resurrected Christ. So he believes that Jesus Christ was resurrected. He believes the gospel. If he can believe that, guess what? He can believe in his own resurrection. And so it's, again, guided by God's words, then where the hope comes from, and so then I can base my hope on this. And you know how you know if it's happening in your life? Here's a test. You want test? Test and see. Test and examine ourselves. The test is, what motivates you? Then you'll know what your hope is in. Because hope is a motivator. Best way I can think of to illustrate this is if you've ever met somebody that says, I, I've lost all hope. And sometimes people say that they'll, they'll take their lives or they'll go into deep depression. If you have no hope, why go on? Why live? Why do anything? It's because hope is a motivator. And so what is your hope in? If your hope is in your best life now, then you'll live your life for temporal stuff. You'll live your life for the things not here. If your hope is in that some circumstance is going to change, then you live your life just hopeful for that. And if you live your life based on some promotion that you're going to get in your job, you live your life hopeful for that to happen. You live your life hopeful for your kids to turn out a certain way, hopeful for some scenario in your life. Then your hope is in creation. Your hope is in this world. And your hope is not in God. And you know what you have? You don't have hope. You have a wish. Because you don't have a promise of those things. But when your hope is in God, you have real hope because you've got your hope in His faithfulness. He's been faithful in the past. He's always faithful. In spite of our faithlessness, He is faithful and He keeps His promise. He's kept everyone up until this point. So the promises that have yet to be fulfilled, like the second coming, like Judgment Day, like your afterlife, you can believe that those things, you can be confident of those things, but it's called a hope because it's a future faith. It hasn't happened yet. And so what is your hope in? An evidence that you're living a life of worship is that your hope is in God. And you have to know the motives in order to answer that question. You have to know beyond the actions, which are the thoughts. And Paul says, that's my hope. And because that's my hope, and because I'm guided by God's word, verse 16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Third characteristic, he's got a clear conscience before God and before man. He's guided by God's word, his hope is in God, and he's got a clear conscience before God and before man. And he starts off here by saying, I strive towards it. It's athletic terminology to have a continuous effort for something. It's something he's working towards, to have a clear conscience before God and before man. And that word conscience, it's talking about an inner warning system that each one of us has. Kind of like you think about there's warning systems all over our lives. You've got smoke detectors in our houses. You've got, you know, alarms and fire things that go off and all kinds of stuff that tell us when bad things are about to happen. You've got labels on basically every product, whether it's a curling iron or a cleaning product at your house. There's a warning label on it that basically says, warning, don't be an idiot. Somebody else was an idiot. That's why this is on here, okay? So they, they, there's, all, there's warnings all over the place. God's put that inside of us. He's hardwired that in us. And you know that's true because any people group you go to, maybe that have never even seen or heard the Bible, they know that it's wrong to murder someone. Ten Commandment. They know that it's wrong to steal. They know that it's wrong to lie. If they tell you it's not wrong to steal, take something from them. See what they do. 
If they tell you it's not okay to lie, lie to them. See how they like that. Everyone knows these things are wrong, even if you've never read the Bible. Why is that? Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us, right to the Romans, about Gentiles and how they observe the law. He says, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And what your conscience does is when you sin the first time, you feel guilty. Here's the problem with conscience. You don't feel as guilty the second time. Or in the third time, even less so. And eventually, you can sear your conscience to where eventually you're not bothered by your sin. And you wonder, why are other people bothered by my sin? What is their problem? Why are they judging me? What are they? Because we can sear our conscience. It's like I have a, a warning symbol in my car, and uh, it's been on for about a year. If I'm candid with you, probably over a year. Maintenance required. On it. I don't even notice that. I had a friend get in my car the other day and said, hey, your emergency light's on. I said, yeah, it's on all the time. Don't worry about it. I don't even think about it. Car's going to blow up someday. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's wrong. It seems to run fine to me, but the light won't go off. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take a piece of black tape, stick it over top of the light. Car's fixed. <laughs> That's how some of us get with our conscience. Is that it's, not, it's, just, it's, been there, it's been that way for so long, you don't even notice it anymore. And what Paul's saying here is, he's got a clear conscience. Why does he have a clear conscience? Is it because he's seared it? No. Is it because he's got this overactive conscience? He's constantly, No. See, a healthy conscience is one that's informed by God's word. It goes back to that first point. I believe everything in God's word. And notice he says the word strive. I strive for a clear conscience. It's not because Paul's perfect. And it's not just because he's saying, oh, Jesus died for all those sins, so I don't have to think about any of them. No, he's saying I'm continually in effort to have a clear conscience, which means this. When Paul sins, he repents. When Paul wronged someone else, if you went to another tent maker that Paul had worked with, and you said, has he ever wronged you? If they said yes, he'd say, but I remember he came back, he apologized for it. He tried to make it right. Short accounts of sin. He's striving to. It's not that he's perfect, but he's perfectly honest about his sin. Search me and know me and show me if there's anything offensive in me. And if you do, then I will deal with it. That's how he keeps a clear conscience. What Paul's talking about here is trying to live a blameless life before a watching world. And it's interesting, it's a key part of his arguments, especially through this section in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 23, when he's talking about his, his testimony, why he's not guilty of things, Acts chapter 23, verse 1, he talks about his blamelessness. Here in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, he talks about his blamelessness. In chapter 25, we're going to see, I think it's verse 8, where he talks about his blamelessness. It's continually an argument. In fact, if you read church history, you'll find that was the argument of church apologist. The word apology then meant a defender, defenders of the faith, Justin Martyr. People uh, are different people like that, that are the, the famous people for defending the faith would oftentimes go to, if you want to know if Christianity is legit, look at the lives of the Christians. And they'd argue, they're different. They don't live in the immorality that our culture tells us is okay. They sacrifice for the sake of their neighbors. They're willing to die. They lay their lives down for the sake of getting this message out. It's interesting. If you look at the book of Acts and what we're really seeing here, yes, we're told to be his witnesses, but then you see how people are doing it. It's because of the lives that they lived that Christianity caught on like wildfire in the first century and spread across the world is what we're seeing in the book of Acts. And it's because they lived different. And you start reading the things that they did. Christians would risk their own health to go nurse people that were in disease situations back to health. And they would give out of their poverty. Like they didn't have a meal to eat because they wanted someone else to have a meal to eat. So we don't even understand that. When's the last time you actually prayed, thank you for this daily bread and didn't have food in the pantry or didn't have money to buy another meal? Or it's, they had, that's their situation. They're giving out of their poverty and they're speaking at the risk of their lives. They know Christians are being burned on the stake by Nero, an official that we'll eventually talk about here in the book of Acts. They're being killed for saying things. 
And then you contrast that with the world that we live in now and our materialism and our individualism. To talk about giving out of our poverty, it's, you have to twist Christians' arms to give out of their prosperity, out of their extra, their overflow, the excess. We have no concept of giving out of poverty. It's not bad that we're blessed, but man, we should be more generous. They talk about people loving their neighbors as themselves. That should be a slogan we put on church brochures, but let's ask ourselves, does anyone really do that? Is anyone going to really risk their lives to try and care for someone else who's dying of disease? Or just hope that they're better, be warmed and filled. You think about speaking at the risk of our lives? We have a hard time convincing believers to speak at the risk of hurting a relationship or ruining the reputation or losing a job. You're going to talk about lose your life? We don't even want to lose a job to share the faith, share, share our faith. And then you look at what's happening in our world with all of the uh, sexuality becoming just so, uh, we'll legalize every cr- perversion of sin that we can possibly come up with and it'll be said to be okay. And you know, we'll indulge in all that stuff. And then all that, we've got so much material stuff and we'll indulge in all that stuff and all kinds of things out there. And when we keep feasting on it, feasting on all this sinfulness, you know what eventually is going to happen? Is the world's going to wake up and go, we've gotten everything we wanted and we're still empty. And where are they going to turn? Is it going to be to Christianity? Well, Christianity looks exactly the same as the, no, our kids are no different. Our finances are no different. Our lifestyles are no different. Our decisions are no different. Our businesses are no different. They're just going to look at us and say, that's another version of what I've already experienced. What else can I try? If our Christianity is no different, not just Christianity as a whole, but what about your Christianity? Is it any different? When Paul's saying here, you look at my life. It's different. I'm striving towards a clear conscience before God. How does that happen? The cleansing of God's grace, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm perfectly honest about my sin. And so I'm making right the wrongs that I do, and I'm repenting before you, God. And so what about you? Are you ready to deal with it? If he shows you offensive things, you want to deal with them? Would you rather just not? And we'll pick from the menu our stuff that we like, and we keep our hope in these temporary, temporary circumstances, and we live our lives no different than anyone else. See, at the beginning of the message, I asked you, have you ever been on trial? The answer is yes. You are on trial. You know, some of us have been living in such a way that we've become irrelevant and we're being ignored now. But we're being watched. Being watched by the world around us. We're being watched by the one who knows the motives and knows the thoughts and knows all the deeds. And we will be judged. There will be a judgment day. Whether you want to believe in it or not, you can decide that. But the truth is it's going to be there. And it's, the scripture promises this to, to be true. But is your hope in that? Because Paul's saying he looks forward to it. It's going to be a glorious day. Because he gets to be with his Savior. He gets rewarded for his... Are you living your life for here and for now or for treasures that you're storing up in heaven? For the reward that's going to be there. For the day you're going to see Jesus face to face. You are on trial. Will it be determined that you lived a life worshiping the true God? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I pray for myself. I pray for our worship team. I pray for... Our elders, I pray for our community group leaders. I pray for those who serve in Bridge Kids. I pray for everybody who calls Southbridge their church as a member. I pray for everybody who hears these words, God, that that our, our lives would be poured out like a drink offering before you. That you would take our minds and transform them. That you'd take our hearts and make them fully yours. You'd take our hopes and these false things and shift them to you. That we would live like aliens in this place. That we're foreigners here. That we have a citizenship that's in heaven. And then we'd fully surrender to your word, all of it. That when people look at our lives, they would see the truth of your word. That we would be jars of clay carrying this message that's for you. And Father, forgive us of our sins. 
We repent. We turn to you. Help us to forgive those who sinned against us. God, help us to demonstrate your truth, your gospel message. God, help us to have all of our hope in your gospel message of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be known as followers of the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.